Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Though it was only the first week of June, the sun burnt fierce in the noon sky as the temperature soared into the 90s. 2,000 of us marched down a narrow Minnesota highway, barely 100 miles from the Canadian border, to stop Line 3, the tar sands oil pipeline violating indigenous treaty rights and menacing both the global climate and the health, safety, and sacred traditions of the Anishinaabe people in its path. I followed the first wave of indigenous water protectors as they stepped off the boiling asphalt and descended into the muddy headwaters of the Mississippi River. Ignoring the no trespassing signs, we slogged a hundred yards through mud tugging at our ankles to a wooden platform where we would establish Camp Firelight, a nonviolent occupation of the property of the Enbridge Corporation. Noticing my clerical collar, an Anishinaabe elder called out, Do you feel baptized, Father? I did. I traveled to Minnesota not simply to make a political statement. I went there on pilgrimage as an act of devotion and atonement. My ancestors were colonizers as far back as the Mayflower. While I'm not responsible for their wars against native people and their theft of native lands, I benefit from these crimes in countless ways every day. I can't change the past, but I can demand justice in the present. As an environmental activist who is also a person of faith, I turn more and more to indigenous wisdom and spirituality for guidance. Immersing myself in the headwaters of the Mississippi, I felt powerfully the interconnection of all things, the river and the sky, the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged, the finned, and everything green. Of course, we didn't stop line three. While Enbridge races to complete construction, courageous water protectors led by the GNU Collective, Honor the Earth, and the RISE Coalition, resilient indigenous sisters engaging, continue to put their bodies on the line, enduring brutal treatment at the hands of law enforcement directly paid for by Enbridge. And those who could shut down Line 3, from Minnesota Governor Tim Walz to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to President Biden, they just looked the other way. If you'd like to help Stop Line 3, go to stopline3.org to learn how. It's, it's been a tough year for those of us who care about climate justice and racial justice and public health and democracy. While Trump supporters continue to propagate the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him, 
GOP-controlled states enact voting restrictions with the stench of Jim Crow. After momentary relief that the worst of the pandemic might be behind us, the Delta variant comes roaring in. Climate initiatives that won't even accomplish what the science demands could die in the United States Senate or the Trump-packed Supreme Court. Speaking of climate science, the news is not good. Just last month, 14,000 scientists from 34 countries issued a statement warning that the Earth's vital signs are rapidly worsening. We are nearing or have already crossed tipping points associated with critical parts of the Earth system, including the West Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets, warm water coral reefs, and the Amazon rainforest, the scientists wrote. California and the Pacific Northwest are on fire, while their smoke dims the sky here in Boston. After three days of record temperatures reaching 121 degrees Fahrenheit, the entire town of Lytton, British Columbia, burns to the ground. Flash floods sweep away medieval villages in Germany. Flooding in China leaves a quarter of a million people homeless. A monsoon in India triggers a landslide that kills over a hundred people. And as always, the poorest and most vulnerable people suffer the most. Everything we worried about is happening, says former White House science advisor John Holdren, and it's all happening at the high end of projections even faster than the previous most pessimistic estimates. Given these cascading crises, it's not surprising that many of us fall prey to despair, depression, and hopelessness. To survive, we have to acknowledge the severity of the threats confronting us and feel all of the feelings that well up within us. But acknowledging feelings of impending doom is one thing. Trafficking in doomism is another. Doomism the morbid, lurid, wallowing in worst-case scenarios while dismissing movements for change as futile and naive, doomism is on the rise. The brilliant London-based economist Umer Haq, sometimes called the master of catastrophe, churns out weekly screeds with titles like The Future is Here and It's Made of Apocalypse. If it feels like hell on earth is descending, that's because it is. Does humanity deserve to survive? America is a smoking fascist dystopia. And it's not that I'm negative. We really are screwed. Roy Scranton, author of the 2018 book, We're Doomed, Now What? Dismisses the efforts of youth climate activists like Greta Thunberg as pure Disney. Two years ago, The New Yorker published an essay by novelist Jonathan Franz entitled, What if we stop pretending the climate apocalypse is coming? To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. Guy McPherson, 
a retired ecology professor, has gone so far off the doomist deep end that he endorsed Donald Trump for president in 2016. Trump, he proclaimed, is another manifestation of the cleansing fire. He has secured my vote to quicken the demise, sparking the flame. While scientists point out that doomists often distort the science, maximizing predictions of climate disaster just as denialists minimize them, my arguments against doomism are practical and spiritual. And what good, after all, is an impractical spirituality? As a practical matter, of course, giving up, by definition, eliminates any chance of success. As climate scientist Michael Mann points out, if you take the most environmentally aware progressives, lead them to despair, and convince them to dissociate from civilization, they're not out there on the front lines participating in the political process, demonstrating and fighting for the needed systemic changes. Dr. Elizabeth Sawin, co-founder of Climate Interactive, reminds us that every fraction of a degree of temperature rise averted is suffering averted. Just because you can't stop all suffering is not a reason to not prevent what suffering you can. There are tipping points in the human heart and the collective consciousness that could be just as sudden and big as any in the Earth system. Just because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change isn't charged with documenting them, Dr. Sawin says, does not mean they don't exist, latent, stirring to life. I remember a story from my childhood about two frogs who fall into a bucket of cream. The sides of the bucket are steep and slippery, and, and no matter how they try, they, they can't climb out. They kick and kick to stay afloat, but as hours pass, they grow exhausted. We're doomed, one of them gasps, and slips beneath the surface for the last time. The other keeps on kicking through the long night. By morning, all that kicking has churned the cream into butter which provides a foothold for the frog to climb out of the bucket. The frog who died didn't die from drowning. That frog died from loss of hope. Simply by persisting, the surviving frog remained open to unimagined possibility. Spiritually, if we give up, we forfeit our integrity. Our lives are drained of meaning and purpose. When we abandon hope, we betray both our ancestors and our descendants. Hope is different from optimism. Optimism is an expectation that things will turn out all right. Hope perseveres regardless. Václav Havel, the playwright who became the first president of the Czech Republic, called hope an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. 
Hope, Havel said, is an, an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Professor Cornell West, formerly of Harvard Divinity School, now of Union Theological Seminary, says, optimism for me has never been an option because there's too much suffering in the world. Think of all the African bones and bodies at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean with the slave trade. But hope is something else. You see, because hope is not spectatorial. It's participatory. You're already in the mess, says Dr. West. You're in the funk. What are you going to do? Hope is a verb as much as a virtue. Hope is something that you find in your immersion, and you decide you're going to fight till the end, no matter what. From the coronavirus to the ecological crisis, from structural racism to rising authoritarianism, the obstacles before us can feel overwhelming. And it's hard to know what to do or even where to begin. Lately, I've found comfort and strength in the maxim, do the next right thing. The origins of the saying are obscure, but it has emerged as wisdom for our times. A Google search for the next right thing yields over half a million hits. The next right thing is the title of a half dozen books, a blog, and a song from Disney's Frozen 2, of which the official video has been viewed on YouTube nearly six million times. We know the admonition, do the right thing, from sources from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to the acclaimed 1989 movie by Spike Lee. But do the next right thing. That adds two crucial elements, concreteness and immediacy. Who can say what the right thing to do is and, and on what scale? But the next right thing, the choice we can make right now, given the circumstances we face right now, that seems doable. Whatever happens, no matter how dispirited or, or disoriented I may be, I can do the next right thing, even if it's just dragging myself out of bed in the morning or, for that matter, deciding to stay in bed and get some rest or planting a garden or leading a movement. Whatever we do, we can't do it all. We have to choose how to spend our time, where to concentrate our attention, where to invest our energy. And since everything is connected, every next right thing we do advances the whole. I am primarily, though not exclusively, a climate justice activist. If you work primarily for immigrant justice or voting justice or racial justice or LGBTQ justice or indigenous justice or reproductive justice, you do that work for me as well as I do my climate justice work for you. Lifting up the interconnections among all these issues in a diverse and complex and powerful ecosystem of justice making.
whatever the future holds for us, you and I, each and every one of us, will always have the power of choice. The power that Viktor Frankl, even among the horrors of Auschwitz, called the last of the human freedoms, which can never be taken from us. The power to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Instead of bemoaning our fate to be born into times like these, we could embrace the opportunity to face challenges unprecedented in human history with courage, creativity, determination, and devotion. We are exactly the right people for the tasks placed before us. We were made for this. There is only one question, wrote the late poet Mary Oliver. Her one question is not, will the polar ice caps melt? It's not, will nations stand or fall? It's not, how will we survive? For Oliver, the only question is how to love this world. How to love this world. In a prayer circle at LaSalle Lake, the morning of the Line 3 protest in Minnesota, I was privileged to hear Ojibwe elder Mary Lyons, who survived a painful childhood, racism, and alcoholism to become a revered leader of her people and a champion for environmental justice. When I needed to hear a mother's voice, Mary Lyons says, Hazel Whitehair, my beloved aunt, told me this. We are blessed to have this journey. We are blessed to take each step on these paths. We were gifted with strength like no other. We have to pave a path for the nations yet to come. Life is good today. is good today. Amen. And blessed be. And now for our benediction. I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. The words of great-grandmother Mary Lyons. Life can either be a walk in beauty or a silent place of pain. It's up to you to either live powerless and stuck in your old surroundings or take back your power and create a new world for yourself. You are the only one who can tell your body to breathe. Life is free. It's a gift. It's yours and yours alone. 
You can choose how to live your life. If you love it, live it. If you hate it, change it. You have the power to breathe life. So now, go live it. Amen. And blessed be. Where you go, where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go, beloved. Where you go, I will go. For your people are my people. Your people are mine. Your people are my people. Your divine, my divine. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.